Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about what we've been talking about for so long and what so many of the people that have commented on my videos have wanted for so long, the notion, the concept, the possibility of reforms to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 512 of Title 17, as sexily called here by the United States Copyright Office. What you see on your screen right now is a report that came out late last week that talks about what changes the United States Copyright Office would see to the DMCA. If you're familiar with virtual legality, if you've been in this space for a while, you know we have covered a number of times when the DMCA has been abused or seemingly been abused by various parties of different sophistication levels and that folks have had their materials taken down that seemingly shouldn't have been taken down either under the First Amendment or just in general under the way the statute reads. And so they have said, okay, you know what? Maybe the DMCA isn't quite right. And so the Copyright Office, under the direction of Acting Register of Copyrights, Maria Strong, has issued this uh, 250-page report. But hey, nobody has time to read 250 pages, right? So we're going to go over a few of the highlights, and we're going to talk about why that thumbnail says, oh no. Now, I tweeted out when this report was issued on May 21st that the U.S. Copyright Office has told the internet, you know, that whole DMCA thing may not be working as intended. They described the report as highlighting areas where current implementation of Section 512 is out of sync with Congress's original intent. And I said, oh, well, you know, that's interesting. I think we all agree that the DMCA is not working as intended, even if, like me, we think the concept behind the DMCA is in general a good one. And I had a number of people comment on this tweet. They said, hey, that's very interesting. While I have absolutely zero hope that anything will be done about it, at a minimum, they recognize the law may have pushed the pendulum too far. And another person saying, ah, good. So they will likely be able to close the loops that are currently giving us troubles. And I said, basically, in response to those tweets, not so fast. These things take a while. And this doesn't actually change anything. They have to go and ask Congress to change things. And Congress has a lot on its plate here in 2020. But worse than that now, having dived into the report this morning, I can tell you it's almost the opposite of what you might want if you are a creator on YouTube or you are just tweeting and getting DMCA takedown notices issued against you. The Copyright Office has taken a position that I think you will find uh, very interesting, and we're going to take a look at it in highlight form. I don't want this video to run too long. I want folks to be able to get information out of this that they can't get out of reading through the whole 250-page report. I will, of course, link that report in the description to this video because it's very interesting stuff, and they spent a lot of time on it. They spent a lot of resources on it, but we can look at the highlights and get a lot of what I want to talk about here. So the very first thing is, what does the Copyright Office mean by unbalanced? You or I might think, oh, it's unbalanced because, as we've talked about in virtual legality, they can issue a takedown notice. They really don't have to prove anything. They sign a thing that says that, oh, yes, this is definitely copyright infringement. And the standards are so high to actually punish them for a false statement that this happens all the time and a lot of people get in trouble that shouldn't get in trouble. And maybe the Copyright Office, maybe Congress should address that. Nope, that's not what they mean. So let's take a read through here. 
With the enactment of the DMCA, Congress sought to balance the interests of content owners, online and other service providers, and information users in a way that would foster the continued development of electronic commerce and the growth of the internet. To achieve that balance, Congress believed it was essential to afford OSPs, and when you read OSP, you should think Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, whatever your favorite social media provider is. They wanted to afford those OSPs greater certainty concerning their legal exposure. And to provide copyright owners, your Disney's, your Sony's, your Warner Brothers music groups, with reasonable assurance that they would be protected against massive piracy online. Section 512 was designed to advance both of those goals by providing strong incentives for service providers and copyright owners to cooperate to detect and deal with copyright infringements that take place in the digital networked environment. The structure of the notice and takedown system reflects this desire for cooperation. Section 512 encourages copyright owners to notify OSPs of allegedly infringing material as described in Section 512c3. By doing so, copyright owners can obtain the benefit of having the material removed expeditiously without the time or cost of resorting to litigation. As the legislative history explains, copyright owners are not obligated to give notification of claimed infringement in order to enforce their rights, but they have incentive to do so because neither actual knowledge nor awareness of a red flag may be imputed to a service provider based on information from a copyright owner or its agent that does not comply with the notification provisions put forth in the DMCA. Said so another way, if you just t- send them an email, it doesn't mean that YouTube knows that something is infringing. You actually have to go through the process. So what this was designed to do is say those copyright owners are going to want to go through the process. Similarly, OSPs have the incentive to act expeditiously to remove or disable access to the material upon receiving a notice from the copyright owner in order to qualify for Section 512's limitation on liability. While an OSP, like YouTube, is free to refuse to take down the material or site, even after receiving a notification of claimed infringement from the copyright owner, it would then forfeit the benefit of the safe harbor if found liable for infringement. Thus, Congress envisioned the notice and takedown system as a formalization and refinement of a cooperative process that had been employed to deal efficiently with network-based copyright infringement. However, here's the but. Despite Congress's intentions, the record in the study reveals a stark division of opinion between rights holders, again, they're referring to Disney and Sony, not you or I, and OSPs over how effectively Section 512 balances their respective interests in practice. Representatives of these groups reported strikingly different experiences with the notice and takedown process and offered widely divergent perspectives on its benefits and burdens. Now, we're not going to read all of these sections. I don't want to bore you to tears, but we can read the headlines here and you'll get the gist of what they're going for. Many OSPs report that Section 512 is a success story. We've talked about the DMCA and how it basically is needed in some form to allow the internet as it functions today. So YouTube and Twitter and everyone else says, hey, 512 is good. 512 basically works. We get the notice, we take it down, we evaluate it, we get a counter notice, we put it back up. It basically works. And so it is a success story. Congress should be proud of it. But the creators and rights owners report that Section 512 currently fails to protect them from online infringement. Now, one thing I would note here, the U.S. Copyright Office likes to put in the term creators when they're talking about rights owners in various spots. I think to impute that they're talking about people that are also putting up things on YouTube like you or I, uh, or making tweets, or using Facebook, or really anybody on earth that has any internet connection whatsoever. But as we'll see, it doesn't really mean that. One of the things that jumps out of this report 
is that those folks that are putting up YouTube videos like virtual legality and maybe get a copyright strike that is completely, uh, let's call it inaccurate under the law, they're not covered. They aren't a stakeholder that really has their concerns described, even in 250 pages in this report. This is basically a battle between, well, let's just pick out a company. Let's call them Sony and YouTube and whether Sony should get in trouble or whether they should get more rights under the DMCA, or whether YouTube should, or whether everything is fine. And so when we look at section two here, where they say they think they're failed to be protected, this is Sony. This is Warner Brothers Movie Group. This is Disney or whomever that says, hey, we've got so many things that are on there that are pirating our materials that we are unhappy. 512 clearly isn't stopping this. And certainly from a kind of data-driven standpoint, just the facts of the internet, I don't know that words on a page, a statute, can ever stop copyright infringement, can ever stop piracy. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's written perfectly, as we've talked about in this space. It certainly isn't written perfectly. But while they are complaining about the fact that, hey, we've had to issue 6.5 million of these, or 104 million, I think is a number that pops out here in the last couple of years, or as the Warner Brothers Music Group says, it would take at least 20 or 30 people at a fully loaded, for employing them, cost in excess of $2 million a year, and probably the use of an outside content monitoring contractor, like a Musso TNT Limited, per se, at additional expense to meaningfully affect just WMG's top 25 album releases on YouTube. So folks ask me, hey, why isn't that struck? Why isn't that struck? Why is this allowed and that's not allowed? To some extent, it's because they can't find everybody, because this is so rampant that they can't cover everything that appears anywhere. Uh, And again, as a corporate lawyer, I am sympathetic to that entirely. I want them to be able to protect their copyright, but I also want them to be able to protect their copyright without abusing the system, which we are going to see here is not something that this particular report winds up addressing. As a matter of fact, their conclusion to this balance problem is as follows. The sharp divergence in the assessments of Section 512 by OSPs and copyright owners indicates that the statute in practice is not achieving the balance Congress originally intended. While this divided opinion by itself is not conclusive, the fact that one of the two principal groups whose interests Congress sought to balance is virtually uniform in its dissatisfaction with the current system suggests that at least some of the statute's objectives are not being met. Because they are unhappy, the statute needs to change. And based on that premise, what we will see is the Copyright Office says that the statute needs to change in their favor because they are unhappy with it. YouTube's too happy with it. Disney and Sony are too unhappy with it. And so all those folks that come into my comments with conspiracy theories or otherwise and say the law is co-opted, the legal system is completely controlled by these giant corporations, etc. To some extent, you might be right. In this particular instance, it's the media creators that appear to have completely won over the copyright office in a fashion that completely ignores the individual content creators, just the individual people using Twitter or Facebook or what have you. More acutely, Smaller creators and OSPs have voiced in study comments and roundtable participation, increasing frustration not only with the notice and takedown framework not meeting their needs to protect their works or to serve their customers, but also the absence of any satisfactory opportunities to shape policies and practices that fuel the process. What we just said. YouTube, you and I, 
the various people on Twitter, wherever, unhappy with this whole thing. This evidence seems especially relevant given that the notice and takedown system was premised on the idea that copyright owners and OSPs would find cooperation mutually beneficial. As stated in the previous section, a system that fails to provide adequate protection of creators' rights of all sizes ultimately fails to carry out congressional intent regarding Section 512 as well as the overall purpose of copyright law. Any recalibration of this balance, however, should acknowledge the continuing need for cooperation and compromise among the various stakeholders. No system, however devised, will be able to prevent false positives or completely end digital piracy. While consensus-based fixes may be the ideal, but not the most realistic approach to address this balance, cooperation and compromise among all stakeholders, large and small creators, OSPs, and users would ensure that everyone has a role and responsibility in addressing online infringement in a manner suitable to their objectives and resources. This cooperation should occur at all steps of the notice and takedown process. Furthermore, due to the evolving challenges related to online infringement, any method going forward to effectively address this issue depends upon accurate and precise data shared through these cooperative channels. So they say, hey, Disney and Sony, they aren't happy. We're going to have to do something about that. But we acknowledge that you little guys don't really have a voice in any of this. And we're going to do our best to come up with some system that works to your benefit. Because, hey, that's what needs to happen. However, that's not really what they say they're going to do. As we continue on, we are going to look at the executive highlights of what proposals they want to make here. And we're going to dive into the sections in various ways in order to establish exactly what the Copyright Office is trying to do here and hopefully not be too boring in the process. But I think this is an important conversation for anybody that is really on the internet at all, making forum posts, making tweets, putting Facebook posts up, and certainly those that are making YouTube videos or otherwise interacting even more specifically with the creation of content on the internet. So with the above guiding principles in mind, the Copyright Office makes the following conclusions and recommendations in 12 areas. We're not going to do all 12. Don't worry. Eligible types of OSPs. Congress intended the four categories of OSP to be quite broad in order to accommodate new unforeseen technologies. It appears that courts have generally construed the categories of safe harbors in harmony with Congress, Congress's original intent. The office notes, however, that the current contours of the Section's 512C safe harbor are in tension with the original balance Congress sought to achieve. They look at the court decisions that have taken place over the last 20 years, and they come to the conclusion that the courts have essentially broadened this whole thing to protect YouTube too much. Their conclusion at the end of this section, which again, if you're interested, I highly recommend checking it out for yourself, is as follows. Overall, the Copyright Office finds that the cumulative effect of courts' interpretations of how an OSP qualifies for a particular safe harbor, what the OSP's obligations are with respect to repeat infringers, and the application of the various safe harbor exclusions in Section 512C1 has been to increase the burden on rights holders seeking to enforce their rights online. It is too burdensome for Disney and Sony. The cumulative effect has been to either broaden the safe harbors or narrow the safe harbor exclusions, ultimately altering the balance of the equities as originally weighed by Congress in 1998. The Copyright Office, therefore, would support a congressional effort to clarify select provisions of Section 512 in order to restore its original balance. That sentence alone doesn't actually say what they mean, as the rest of the paragraph kind of says, right? They want to clarify it because they think Disney and Sony and Warner Brothers Music Group and whomever 
have it too hard right now. And it's with that light, with that understanding that we need to read the rest of these recommendations. Because while those folks that came into my Twitter, those folks that talk to me on virtual legality say, oh, hopefully the copyright office is actually looking at this and understanding that it's too easy to issue a fraudulent claim. It's too easy to make our lives difficult. It's too easy to quash speech that should be free under both the Constitution and the statute itself. No, that's not what this is all about. And I know that's unfortunate. I know that's not what you want to hear. That's why I've got oh no in the thumbnail. But that is, in fact, the case. So we go and we look further on. We've got some fun kind of things here. Repeat infringer policies. While there is significant disagreement among stakeholders regarding the meaning of repeat infringer, the Fourth Circuit has held that a repeat infringer under Section 512 means repeat alleged infringer, not repeat adjudicated infringer. They go on from there. But suffice it to say, in order to get the safe harbor, these OSPs have to do things about folks that are repeatedly infringing on their service. They got to terminate their account. They got to do other things that are penalties to them. And so there was a fight, right? Because the statute says you have to be an infringer. Does that mean somebody actually has to prove that you infringed? Or is it just what we allege? And the Copyright Office comes very strongly on the premise that it's just what is alleged. While any interpretation of Section 512I must give OSPs some discretion to define what a repeat infringer is in a manner that makes sense given their service and user base, any definition must be consistent with the statutory criteria that repeat infringer meets re- means repeat alleged infringer, not repeat adjudicated infringer. Said another way, this whole system has at its very core the notion that YouTube, under the law, has to penalize you for having infringement alleged against you too often, right? And that never happens, right? Nobody is issuing fraudulent notices. Nobody is ever getting folks in trouble. You don't have companies like the EFF that are actually designed to protect First Amendment principles online get issued a DMCA takedown notice on their article complaining about DMCA takedown notices, That doesn't happen. You don't have a 10-video series about a multinational corporation issuing, let's call them allegedly, abusive DMCA takedown notices online. You don't have that, right? But if you did, if these things did exist, if it wasn't a fever dream shared by us all, that would be a big problem. Because the way the Copyright Office actually interprets this rule suggests that It only requires things to be alleged against you in order for the OSP to have to penalize you. And that's the current state of the law, by the way. But rather than correct that, the Copyright Office says, no, no, that has to be the way this is read. That has to be how things would work. Because the Copyright Office has never been on the internet before ever and certainly doesn't understand that people can troll other people. That one particularly popular YouTuber can essentially get a number of reports placed on his enemy or her enemy online that you could have a YouTuber say that they have a copyright in their face and they can issue copyright strikes on other people. No, that never happens. And so because it never happens, this makes a whole lot of sense. But if it did, maybe it wouldn't make as much sense. Going back to the rest of their recommendations here, we're going to skip knowledge requirements. This is actually a really interesting section, but it's a long section, and it is really about what kind of knowledge YouTube and Facebook and Twitter have to have about the alleged infringement 
and what can be imputed to them based on the way they operate their systems. And is the fact that they are just really, really, really big a certain amount of protection or does that constitute a willful blindness and all this good stuff? That one doesn't directly kind of implicate what we're talking about here. So I'm going to leave that section, but basically the Copyright Office suggests that Congress needs to reevaluate, that maybe YouTube is getting away with too much. The next bullet point is with respect to representative lists and identification of location. Again, a lot of legalese here, a lot of specificity that I don't know that you necessarily need to concern yourselves with, other than if you're interested in the specificity here. But what I wanted to talk about on this question was with respect to what they have to identify, right? One of the things that popped up in the Last of Us Leaks video series is the fact that a number of these folks were issuing takedown notices, identifying the whole video, and then just having that takedown notice take effect when YouTube actually wants you to identify with specificity the portion of the video that is a problem. But the DMCA actually doesn't say portion of a video. It says you have to identify, you have to give a representative list of your works that are infringed against, like The Last of Us Part Two, And then you have to say where those infringements take place. But one of the fights is a lot of the rights holders, your Disney's, your Sony's, your Warner Music Groups, want to say YouTube. Want to say the infringement is on www.youtube.com. And one of these rights holders said it as follows. It is critical to note in this regard that the representative list provision refers to the use of a representative list of works at a single online site, not at a single online location. This provision should not be read as inconsistent with the requirement of Section 512C3A3 for a notification to include information reasonably sufficient to permit the service provider to locate the material claimed to be infringing. Instead, it suggests that upon receipt of a notification, including a representative list, a service provider should review its site for such infringing materials, possibly including infringements of works that are not explicitly identified in the representative list, but of which the list is, in fact, representative. Understand what that means. Sony wants to be able to send an email to YouTube that says Last of Us Part 2. And then YouTube has to go and find everything that YouTube thinks might be infringing. Which, by the way, if YouTube thinks is infringing, as an alleged infringer, might result in you getting the entire thing taken down, your entire account, your livelihood, whatever, without Sony ever having identified your channel at all. And if you were in this space for the entire COPPA fiasco at the end of last year, you will note the irony of this particular argument. This argument says YouTube is one site, that the channels are not separate, that YouTube should go through all of its various URLs because they're all YouTubes, which is right because the content creators, the channel operators don't have any control over how the website works, but note how it is exactly the opposite of what the government puts forth with respect to COPPA. That, oh, of course, the content creators are website operators. This doesn't work. Both of these options don't work together. And if you're a YouTube content creator, you look at this and you say, oh, okay. So the basic premise of the Copyright Office or the FTC is that YouTube might be fine. Sony and Disney might be fine. But if we can squeeze the content creators going this way and that way, we should definitely do that. And in fact, I can't even sit here and tell you that you're wrong. It might be a conspiracy theory, but it seems to be a pretty accurate one. When we get to the end of this section, we actually see that the Copyright Office says, ooh, maybe a URL shouldn't be required. 
The office recognizes that teasing out the correct contours of the representative list and identifiable location provisions is difficult, in large part due to ambiguities in the statutory language itself. That's the Copyright Office saying Congress wrote it wrong, and appreciates that the ultimate interpretation of these provisions will have a significant impact on the balance of rights and responsibilities between OSPs and rights holders. Congress has intended the representative list provision, along with the other components of the notice and takedown framework, to encourage cooperation among rights holders and OSPs by properly apportioning the responsibility for identifying and removing allegedly infringing content on the internet. But the ultimate result of statutory ambiguity has been, in most cases, to collapse the two provisions, allowing a representative list of copyrighted works, but then rejecting use of that list to provide notice with respect to infringing materials that are not specifically enumerated and located. Such a result does not appear to be in keeping with Congress's original intent, but addressing any disconnect between application of the statute and congressional intent would likely require statutory clarification. Said another way, we don't like how this operates right now at the Copyright Office. Disney and Sony don't like how it operates right now. But actually reading the statute, it seems like that probably is how it should operate right now, but that seems wrong to us. Similarly, while Congress originally cited a URL as an example of such sufficient information to allow an OSP to locate the allegedly infringing material, a number of courts have interpreted this to mean that only a specific URL can satisfy the location identification requirement. For this reason, Congress may wish to consider clarifying that concept, including whether a URL is even a necessary identifier or merely an example. The Copyright Office is looking at this and saying, it's too hard for Disney. It's too hard for Sony. Coming up with a channel URL... Oh, that's really difficult. They should just be able to say YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. Folks, this is not going the way you want it to go. And it hasn't even gotten to the worst part. Knowing misrepresentation and abusive notices or counter notices. Senders of both takedown notices and counter notices are liable for damages if they make knowing material misrepresentations regarding whether the material to be taken down is infringing or has been removed or disabled by mistake or misidentification. Courts have appropriately interpreted this provision by requiring actual knowledge or willful blindness of falsity, not merely negligent or unreasonable misrepresentation. The office notes, however, that many stakeholders called for increased penalties for misrepresentations to serve any kind of deterrent effect, right? If we go and we look at knowing misrepresentation, this is what we've talked about most often in this space. People say, how can they do this, Rick? How can they file this document when it's ridiculous, right? Certainly nobody has ever filed a DMCA takedown on Twitter for a sentence. That's never happened. What is the copyright material in this? It's nothing. There isn't even a good faith argument that this is a copyrighted material. But hey, knowing misrepresentation, does it even happen? Who can say? Another element that is nearly as important to the adequate functioning of the notice and takedown process is the accuracy and appropriateness of notices and counter notices codified in Section 512F's prohibition against the making of knowing misrepresentations in such notices. Under Section 512F, a person who knowingly materially misrepresents that material or activity is infringing in a notice shall be liable for damages incurred as the result. Congress believed that misrepresentations in a notice are detrimental to everybody. It intended the section, therefore, to help maintain the balance of responsibilities shared by the rights holders and service providers by deterring people being fraudulent. During the course of the study, participants from all sides of the issue offered an interpretation of the functionality of Section 512, 
Participants disagree, however, over the extent to which 512F in fact deters abusive notices. Rights holders like Sony and Disney generally take the position that Section 512F poses a significant deterrent to fraudulent notices without unduly burdening rights holders and users. OSPs, however, argue that 512F is completely toothless and does not provide an adequate safeguard for abusive notices. They're right, by the way. I don't go so far as to say who's right on these things all the time, but it is completely toothless. A knowing material standard is almost impossible to achieve. Several participants during the Washington, D.C. roundtable particularly point out that Section 512F neither incentivizes potential notice senders to carefully consider whether a notice is appropriate, nor disincentivizes others in sending abusive notices. In support of their position on the lack of effectiveness, several OSPs cite in their comments and at the roundtables evidence that they believe highlights the significant number of inappropriate notices under the current system. Note the Copyright Office's careful use of they believe. Everything else that we've read so far, and there's a lot of language here that we're skipping, obviously, is facts and understandings and findings of the Copyright Office. This is what we believe to be true. When you have the Copyright Office say, evidence that they believe highlights, it basically should be read as, we aren't so sure about this. And that's what the paragraph says. Because much of the data relating to notice and takedown requests is not public, it is difficult to ascertain the extent to which some of these examples are representative of what's happening in the Section 512 ecosystem. Uh, Yeah, so they say there's a lot, but, you know, we're not sure. Rights holders challenge the notion that takedown notices misrepresenting infringement are common. In reality, wrote the Authors Guild, they are incredibly rare. Anybody in this space watching this video believe they are incredibly rare? We just talked for two weeks about maybe a hundred takedown notices from Sony that were very, very, very questionable, including at least a couple that were just outright wrong. And that's Sony. These guys have hundreds of lawyers and they know what they're doing. We're not even talking about other YouTubers randomly issuing strikes. We're not even talking about the dozens of people that DM me or send me in my mentions. Hey, Rick, this seems wrong that I can't advise because they're not my clients. But this is happening all the time. And the fact that the Authors Guild comes out here and says they are incredibly rare, this never happens, is quite frankly, ridiculous. And the fact that the Copyright Office is highlighting this and saying, oh, the abuse is only alleged by YouTube or Twitter or Facebook or any other OSP is quite frankly a little bit frightening that the Copyright Office is so disconnected from how the internet actually operates. Then they can continue on with the bigger problem here as we've talked about, the universal versus lens case, which says, yes, you have to consider fair use, but it only has to be reasonable in your own mind. It's a subjective standard. As long as you had some lawyer issue a memo, put it in your file that said, yeah, we thought about fair use, but we think we're fine. That Sony says, hey, you know, this screenshot was stolen from us. And yes, it's commentary. And no, it's not a lot of the game. And no, it doesn't affect our market, but it was still stolen. So we don't think it's fair use. We put that memo in the file. We strike everybody, strike them all. And that's fine under the law right now. And a lot of people had come into my comments and said, you know, maybe the copyright office will look at that. Maybe they'll change it. Maybe they'll do something. And they address it, but not in the way that you want. The courts have generally applied a subjective knowledge standard in Section 512F cases, asking whether the sender subjectively knew of a misrepresentation rather than whether an objectively reasonable person should have known. In Lens, the Ninth Circuit found that a notice sender is liable under 512F if it had actual knowledge 
that the assertion in a takedown notice that the material activity was infringing was false or was willfully blind to the non-infringing nature of the material or activity. The Ninth Circuit in Lens further explained that a willfully blind defendant is one who takes deliberate actions to avoid confirming a high probability of wrongdoing and who can almost be said to have actually known the critical facts. Several OSPs question the effectiveness and appropriateness of the subjective knowledge standard to the extent that it fails to capture false and abusive notices. One commenter notes that the subjective knowledge standard rendered section 512F ineffective because an objectively unreasonable takedown notice targeting clearly non-infringing material will not support that damage claim unless the defendant admits that it knew it sent a false notice. Another commenter unequivocally states that the subjective standard, particularly as articulated in Lens, may reward sloppiness and creates a perverse incentive for copyright owners not to learn about the law before sending a takedown. One OSP also suggests that since the subjective knowledge standard shields some instances of objectively false takedown notices from liability, the penalties should be strengthened in order to provide adequate deterrence. That's what we've talked about, right? When you start saying that alleged infringers should be stricken, that their accounts should be stolen just based on allegations, maybe this whole standard is too high. But even if it isn't, we need the penalties to be higher. Okay, not just costs, let's get treble damages. Let's do some real damage to people that do this. And yeah, if they do it repeatedly, Let's have a provision in there that says if you do this repeatedly, then you get into real, real trouble. Rights holders, Disney, Sony, conversely argue that the subjective knowledge standard is entirely appropriate. They point out that if the threshold for a false notice under the statute were lowered, it would risk subjecting copyright owners to limitless lawsuits just for policing their copyrighted material on the internet. Yeah, yeah, it might, but it might also subject them to limitless lawsuits for doing a little bit more than policing. The United States actually came out in favor of the lens criteria. This particular report says if Congress wishes to reevaluate the purpose and role of section 512F to target notices whose inaccuracy stems from negligence or lack of care, in addition to knowingly false assertions by the sender, then it may consider the adoption of a different standard, such as adding liability for reckless disregard. That's not going to get you very far. Reckless disregard is another kind of very high standard, very similar to knowing issues. A little bit lower, admittedly, but still doesn't get you where you need to go. And reckless disregard on a fair use type question, where as we've talked about, is entirely based on facts and circumstances, isn't going to get you anywhere. And hey, maybe fair use doesn't even survive, right? Talking about fair use, the Copyright Office says, as outlined in the United States Amicus Curi brief in Lens, the Ninth Circuit's holding imports the good faith belief standard from Section 512C3A into its evaluation of whether the rights holder made a knowing representation within the meaning of Section 512F. The result is placing potential liability on rights holders who fail to undertake a fair use inquiry before sending a takedown notice without regard to whether or not the material is actually infringing. Instead, Based on the language of the statute, Section 512F properly looks to whether the rights holder knowingly materially misrepresent that the material or activity is infringing. Thus, to find a rights holder liable under Section 512F, a court must first determine whether or not the use is in fact infringing, and if not, whether the copyright owner made the misrepresentation knowingly. The office suggests that Congress monitor how the courts apply lens and consider clarifying the statutory language if needed. Lens is too hard on Disney and Sony. Really? Really, Copyright Office. The the simple one-page memo 
that your first year associate put in the file cabinet to allow you to do this is too hard on them. Wow. This really, really, really didn't go the way that reformers of the DMCA would have had it gone. Finally, they talk about a couple of other things that we will address in kind of short form here. One is which uh, the notice requirements don't match up with what we expect from the modern internet. That the various steps of the certification on perjury and things along those lines should be under the copyright office's purview. They are essentially asserting that they would like more authority here that the rules about the notice and counter notice provisions shouldn't be in the statute, but instead should be something that they can change on the fly, which if you're following along with this report should be something that if you are a content creator or just somebody that uses the internet and could get a DMCA takedown notice from one of these giant rights holders should put the fear of God in you because the copyright office has clearly shown that they think the current setup is too hard on those rights holders. And because of that, putting more regulatory authority in their hands would seem to be a significant issue for those of us that interact with the internet on a regular basis. Finally, in respect to the timeframes here, they, they actually advocate a very interesting thing. They say, another aspect of section 512 that received significant attention from all stakeholders was the 10 to 14 day period between when the OSP receives a counter notice and when the copyright holder must file a federal lawsuit or see the material get replaced. One OSP notes that the timeline is unbalanced, suggesting that a more balanced system would allow the service provider freedom to restore the material immediately with cause to do so. Rights holders, albeit for a completely different reason, criticize this timeline as well, arguing that 10 business days after receiving a counter notice is not a sufficient time period to allow filing a federal lawsuit before the OSP reinstates the allegedly infringing material. They're exactly right, by the way. In order to file a federal lawsuit, your counsel needs to go and evaluate the entirety of that lawsuit, make sure that it is legitimate and justified to file. 10 days is almost certainly not enough time to kind of get your ducks in a row there. But understanding that fact, you've already had the time frame in which you've issued the notice. It's been taken down. If the counter notice happens immediately, yes, it's 10 days, but you haven't lost your right to sue on the question. But it's also worth noting that 10 days is too long, right? This particular statutory time frame, as described by the Copyright Office itself, turns out to present something like a Schrodinger's time frame, both too long to have non-infringing speech down and too short to enable a copyright owner to adequately research and file their complaint in federal court. If you're not infringing, 10 days is an eternity, especially on YouTube or something like that, where you're hopefully monetizing your commentary. You're making a little money on selling ads. You didn't do anything wrong, right? The premise is you didn't infringe. And it's down for 10 days. And if you're a news item type video series, like maybe a virtual legality, that 10 days is the window where you could have made money on it. And if somebody can just give you that notice and keep you down for 10 days, that can kill your business model entirely, period. End of question. At the same time, the Copyright Office comes to as its conclusion, requiring a court action to contest a counter notice is not feasible given the volume of infringement and the associated federal court costs. Moreover, before filing in federal court, a plaintiff's attorney must fully investigate the claims. Because of these time constraints, federal court is likely not a good option for disputing counter notices, and Congress may wish to consider alternative dispute resolution solutions. Understand what they just said there. You issue a counter notice 
They think that the rights holders should no longer have to pursue a federal lawsuit in order to combat that counter notice, which, in my opinion, is a real, real mistake because federal lawsuits are difficult. They're expensive, even for somebody like Sony or Disney or Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Music Group. And so it is a significant deterrent that they really have to decide that they're going to take that step. And anything less than that is only going to encourage more, let's say, aggressively positioned DMCA takedown notices, a fact which the Copyright Office completely ignores because this entire report is framed around the premise that life is too hard for Disney and Sony. And so all of these things, oh, well, maybe they shouldn't have to sue in order to beat your takedown. Oh, maybe all these other things are too big of a problem. Oh, you know what? That knowing falsity requirement, even though we've said in other places that Congress should change things, maybe they shouldn't change that one. Or maybe if they do change it, it should be really, really light. Because, hey, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, they can't prove that anybody is doing anything abusive. There aren't a hundred articles in The Verge. There aren't a million articles in Polygon or TechDirt or anywhere else talking about abusive DMCA takedown notices. There isn't a rampant multinational corporation sending letters to The Hollywood Reporter that says that they can't publish the emails that were leaked out of their own infrastructure. That's definitely not happening. And so when you get to the end of all of this, when you get to this report and its conclusion, it basically says, hey, things are unbalanced. Things are unbalanced because YouTube and Twitter and Facebook have it too easy and there's too much piracy and we need to bulk up the ability for Disney and Sony and Warner Brothers to make life difficult for everyone on the internet. I'm very sorry to say that's virtual legality for today. If you enjoyed this video, please like, share, subscribe, tell other people that we are here, that we are talking about these things. I think these are important conversations to have. Otherwise, this channel is really devoted to talking about business and law through the lens of pop culture, video games, movies, television, and hopefully giving you a little bit more understanding about the news items you see every day. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.